Hey, thank you for joining us for another week as we study through the book of Colossians. And we are setting out to plant this church in Palos Verdes. And so I don't know where you're tuning in from. If it's from Santa Barbara, we miss you guys. We love you. We'll be up there next weekend uh, to teach at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara. And if you're in Palos Verdes, we would love to meet you and connect with you. Let's do a socially distanced hangout. Uh, we're, we're ready to hang with you. If you're tuning in from somewhere else, we're glad that you're connecting with us. And we hope that these Bible studies are a blessing to you. So let's look together now at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 21 and then go through the rest of the chapter together. So if you listened last week, you know that the title of the message was The Real Jesus. And I truly believe that in this time, now more than ever, we need to know the real Jesus. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 20 shows us the real Jesus. That he is fully God and fully man. And among other things, he has reconciled us to the Father by his blood. Now, one of the statements in our church vision that has been a guiding principle in my life, and I hope to be a guiding principle for this new church, is to bring the real you to the real Jesus. And so since last week we looked at the real Jesus, this week we're going to take a look at the real you. Now, let me obviously give a quick disclaimer. I don't maybe know you. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But there's two people that know you the best, and that's you. Nobody's going to know you better than you know yourself. And the second person is God, because God is your creator, and he knows you better than any person will ever know you. And so God wants to have a relationship with you. God sent his son Jesus to reconcile you to himself. And that's what we're going to read about in Colossians chapter 1, beginning now at verse 21, where it says, And you, see, I told you we'd be talking about you. It says, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Okay, so I don't know what part of that stood out to you more. Maybe it was the part that made you sound really bad, or it's the part that made you sound really good. And here's the thing, both can be true about you. The Bible is an honest book that gives us an honest evaluation of our lives. And the Bible tells us that we have blemishes, calls it sin. And in our sin, uh, we have been separated from God. But because of the reconciling work of Jesus, we have this blessed hope of the gospel, which is that we can have these blemishes removed. And so what does the scripture say about you? Well, it's first saying right here, as we're looking at this text, that Paul Paul's writing to a church. He's writing to those people that he already assumes are believers, people that have already been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. Now, this isn't the case for all people. And so what Paul here is referring to as something of the past might actually still be your present condition. This is the case if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. 
And, and, and I pray that maybe after today, you would have a re relationship with Jesus, that you would be reconciled to God. Now, if you do have a relationship with God through Christ, then this statement is true of you, but it's something of the past. And so here it is. You were alienated. You were an enemy in your mind toward God by your wicked works. This is something of, a, of the past for you as a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is your present condition. And so let's look at each one of those things. First, alienation. Sin has caused separation between man and God. To be alienated means that sin makes us estranged and excluded from fellowship with him. And that's the reality of all people since the fall of mankind. If we look back to Adam and Eve that were sent out of the Garden of Eden, they were no longer able to have the right or the privilege of entering that place of fellowship with God. Therefore, they were alienated from God because of sin. And then it says that we were enemies in our minds. Now, to be an enemy means that you are at, uh, that you have hostility with somebody. And this tells us that mankind has had a mindset that is opposed to God and is rebellious toward him. See, we've put God at an arm's distance, and we may have even warred against his plans and purposes, which is to conform our minds into Christ. And then it says that this has happened by our wicked works. It's our actions that have made this so. These aren't just arbitrary thoughts, but there are definitive actions in our lives that indeed show that we are alienated and enemies in our minds. And some people find it hard that the Bible uses these words like lost or dead or an enemy or alienated. But the Bible is giving a real evaluation of the condition of humanity apart from Christ. But again, in Christ, this is our past. So I know for me personally that these statements were accurate in my life. I was once alienated from God. I was uh, an enemy in my mind toward him. I certainly committed works that were wicked. And this is all true of my past, without a doubt. And, and maybe you, maybe you've lived a pretty good life and you feel like these words are maybe a little bit too harsh of a judgment for you. However, I ask you the question, where are you getting your standard of perfection? So you might be a really nice person. You might be friends with all the people that you meet. Uh, you have a lot of good works um, that you can point to in your life. But in view of perfection, I think you've missed the mark. That's the meaning of sin, that we have missed the mark. As nice and as friendly and as good-willed as we might be in view of perfection, we've all missed it. We've all fallen short of the glory and the standard of God. Therefore, alienation, hostility, and wicked works are actually true about you. Yet, 
And there's the key word. You got to love the yets and the buts of the Bible. It says there, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So if you've been reconciled to God, then this is true about you. Your present characteristics are that you are holy, you are blameless, and you are above reproach in his sight. Let's look at each one of those things. Holiness. You have an internal and an external moral integrity. You've been separated from sin and set apart to God. You are blameless. There's nothing flawed about you. You've been cleansed, and there's nothing in your life that is defective, blameless. And you're above reproach in his sight. Nothing can be said about you that would incur guilt. God sees you as justified. Therefore, there can be no accusation brought against you. So how does one become, uh, how does one who was once alienated become holy? How does one who is an enemy in their mind become blameless? How does one who with wicked works becomes above reproach in the sight of God? Do we just say the right things? Do we just think more clearly? Do we just try a little bit harder? No, this change has happened because we have been reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And how did he do that? Verse 22 tells us, He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. God took on flesh and and becoming a man He died. In a body, he died. And the bodily death of Jesus matters. See, the death of Jesus in his flesh was received by God as a sacrificial payment for sins. Sin discredits holiness. Sin casts blame and makes us guilty. Sin says all things about us that accuse us. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death and he did it bodily in the flesh and he reconciled us therefore the sinner has been sanctified hostility has been exchanged for friendship and God sees us like a parent sees its child as beloved as accepted and these are the beautiful truths of the gospel And that's not all. Let's continue as we look now at verse 23, where it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, some people get stuck here because they see the word if, right there at the beginning of verse 23, and and they think, Now, is there some condition that's attached to this new status? That our holiness or our friendship with God or our right standing with him can somehow be snatched away from us us if we behave badly again? But that's not what the if is implying. 
The if in verse 23 is known as a first class conditional statement. It's a fancy way of saying that the implications of this are that these things have already been fulfilled. They've already happened. It, it, a, another word might be translated instead of if, since. So if indeed, if this is true about you, then, or since this is true, you will continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel with which you heard. So if you're a person that continues in the faith, if you're grounded and steadfast, if you don't drift away from the hope of the gospel, it is because you have been reconciled. Now, if you don't continue in the faith, if you're not grounded and steadfast, if you drift like a ship without an anchor, then you might want to bring into question, have you actually been reconciled? Now, this doesn't mean that as believers, we will live with sinless perfection. We will stumble at times. But you come again and again to your reconciling Savior, and He keeps you in His love. See, where believers often struggle, struggle, and, and where I've often struggled in my life, is when your practice doesn't match your position. You want to be holy, but you sin. You want to be blameless, but you can't get those accusations out of your mind. And what I've found is in the times in my life when these things aren't lining up, when my practice doesn't match my position, what I do is I come back to the scriptures like this one here, and I remind myself of what Jesus has done for me. See, instead of thinking of all the ways that I'm trying to love God and how I want to serve him and how I want to live this righteous life, I stop and I look at Jesus. Because instead of thinking of how much I'm failing or how wretched I feel or how distant God seems to be from me, I come to God's word and I remind myself of how much he has loved me, how he took on a body and died in the flesh for my sins. And I'm reminded of how he has served me, how he has made me righteous, how he's reconciled me to God. When I look at words like these and I see what he has said about me, not what other people have said about me, not what the enemy has said about me, not even what I have said about myself, but what God has said about me. And these words are here because we will never get our practice right unless we first fully understand our position. See, always, 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 you will live a much happier and a much holier life when you know your reconciled identity in Jesus Christ. Your obedience to God, your right, uh, your right practice for God is going to flow out from your right relationship with God. That positionally you know that you are redeemed and reconciled. So in Jesus, you are holy. In Jesus, you are blameless. In Jesus, you are above reproach in his sight. When you know these truths about yourself, your life is going to begin to look that way. 
you're not going to have these qualities, these characteristics standing on your own. It has to be in Jesus. And so let's look now at the next verse, verse 24, where it says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. So Paul is now going to speak about his present situation and who he knows himself to be. This is the real Paul. Paul knows that he's a minister, one who was privileged of revealing the mystery of the church, which for ages and generations was not known. But after Christ ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, he revealed his plan to make the church, that he would take Jews and Gentiles and he would make one new man and it would be the church. And the church is God's agent of change that brings the message of reconciliation to this world. And God made Paul a minister of that, a steward of that mystery, and God called him by his grace. And when Jesus called Paul, he told him how much he would have to suffer for the name of Jesus. And Paul did suffer. And his response to suffering, as again said here, was one that was of rejoicing, not in a weird kind of ascetic practice kind of way, but knowing that his sufferings would produce fruit for the church. And when Paul says there that he was filling up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ, there is not at all the thought in Paul's mind, nor should there be the thought in ours that Christ's sacrifice was somehow lacking or insufficient. No, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was fully satisfactory for justice. The death of Jesus paid in full our debt of sin. The cross is solely sufficient to deal with sin. But what Paul does mean is that as a believer, just as Jesus is preeminent in all things we learned last week. Jesus was first in suffering. And now it's Paul's turn to, in a sense, step up to the plate and experience the fellowship of sufferings in Christ. And I fear that many in the church today have no concept for this. Many in America are quick to claim their right when Jesus laid his down. And Paul at times did claim his right, like as a Roman citizen, so that he could avoid a beating. But other times, he rejoiced at the unjust treatment if it meant the gospel being proclaimed through it. And so as Christians, we need to understand that the real you, the real Christian, will know something of suffering. And you'll have this ability to rejoice in suffering because you know that, that you're not suffering uh, for some weird sake, but you're suffering for the greatest purpose, greater purpose of the work of the gospel in the world. 
Well, let's look then at the last few verses where it says in verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. As a Christian, the greatest truth about you is Christ in you. The real you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Paul said, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And, and, and that's what we're made for, that Jesus would actually indwell the body of belief. Do you realize, Christian, that you are the temple of the living God, that Jesus actually dwells within you? And we own that as Christians. We own the fact that God is far from being distant. God is closer than we will ever fully know. That he actually lives inside of us. Jesus dwells in you. That's the real you. And that's why Paul says, him we preach. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus, because it's only Jesus that can make a perfect man. We do not become perfect by trying harder, or being better, or attaining to some higher level of spirituality. We are perfect in Christ, and Jesus lives in you to guarantee that. You are holy because he is holy. You are blameless because he has cleansed you. You are above reproach because he has spoken a better word over your life. You are not alienated, but you have become his child. And we are not enemies in our minds because we have the mind of Christ. And in our good works, we get to bear this testimony that we have been reconciled to God and that God lives in us and empowers us to be like him. That's the real you. That is truly who you are in Jesus. And so Paul says, to this end, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Can you say that of your life? As you live and look like Jesus, as, as you would be the realest and truest you, indwelt by Jesus, can you say, to this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I pray that you would know that and that you would bring the real you to the real Jesus and see the amazing things that happen when you do that. God bless you.